Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The designs and prints of Florence Broadhurst still appear on everything from nightclub walls to textiles to runway models, but her name has largely been forgotten. Her style spoke directly to the trends of the 1960s and 70s. It was full of geometric shapes, psychedelic colors, bold florals, palms, and birds. Florence's designs reflected the way she lived her own life. They were bright and loud. They demanded your attention. But Florence's wallpaper and fabrics empire was built on exaggerations, fantasies, and even outright lies. She took credit for designs she created with collaborators. She invented fake backstories for herself. She even claimed to be much younger than she really was. Florence Broadhurst charmed and conned her way into the upper echelons of society. She spent a lifetime fighting for success, and when she got it, she did whatever it took to hold on. Florence rarely slept more than five or six hours a night. She often stayed late in her factory, long after everyone else had gone home. But it had all been worth it. By 1977, anybody who was anybody in Australia knew her name. Until someone ended her reign for good. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Florence Broadhurst. This week, we'll cover Florence's complicated artistic life before her creative career was violently cut short. Next week, we'll cover the close calls, dead ends, and half-truths that leave Florence's murder a mystery to this day. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. At the turn of the 20th century, Australia was still a relatively young country. Much of its culture, fashion, and art was dictated by the trends in Victorian England. But in this country longing for a voice of its own, Florence Broadhurst would find hers. And while the rags-to-riches story Florence would later tell was not entirely accurate, she was born in the small town of Mount Perry in Queensland, Australia, on July 28, 1899. Florence's mother, Margaret Ann, was a soft-spoken, gentlewoman who kept the home and looked after the children. Her father, Bill, could not be more opposite— He was a loud, rough-and-tumble man who felt most at home tending to the wilderness estate he managed and camping out in the bush. He loved to tell tall tales. Bill was also a man who knew what he wanted and made sure he got it, a trade he would pass on to Florence. In September of 1902, he purchased a piece of land for himself and built his family a home. Bill didn't stop with just one patch of land— A few years later, he purchased an even larger acreage where he raised his own cattle. For the Broadhursts, more land meant more money. The family was well on their way to a new social class, the landed gentry. With a new social position, the Broadhurst children began doing all the things that genteel children were expected to do. They played tennis, went to picnics, and attended dances. Florence, by age 10 was excellent at making her own dresses for these events, a skill that would prove to be very useful later in her life. But dressmaking wasn't the young girl's only talent. Annie Dale, piano tutor to the Broadhurst Daughters, saw something special in Florence's future. Wonderful, Florence, dear. Keep practicing those scales. Bill, Margaret Ann, your daughter is quite good. Not only her keyboarding skills, but her voice. I can continue to guide her piano playing, but I know a fabulous singing instructor in Bundaberg. Bundaberg? That's 60 miles away. She'd have to go into town and take a train to get there. I understand your concern, Margaret Ann, but believe me, Florence is special. This is what she needs. I'm not so sure. Come on, darling. This will be good for Florence. Well... All right. Thank you, Mrs. Dale. Oh, excellent. Florence, lovey, I have wonderful news. Every Saturday, Florence would take the train 60 miles for private voice lessons. By the time she was 19, all that travel paid off. On August 7, 1918, Florence sang as part of the Grand Patriotic Concert, a fundraiser for soldiers... And she was a hit. Florence was so well-received that she was invited to do another performance just a few months later. But this time, she would be one of the featured performers. Over the next few years, Florence started taking gigs at social clubs, hotels, and private events. Her rich contralto voice warmed rooms, and her presence on stage was magnetic. It seemed that she had her future as a solo singer set out in front of her. But slowly, the concerts dried up. Her early buzz faded. Eventually, Florence's solo career fizzled, and it became clear that the young woman was not going to be the next great diva. 
Still, Florence was never one to accept defeat. She may not have had what it took to carry a show on her own, but there were other ways of getting on stage. Florence found her next opportunity when she caught the eye of the Globetrotters, a new performance group planning a 15-month tour of Asia. The Globetrotters recognized her potential and immediately brought her on board. When Florence joined the group in early 1922, the Globetrotters included two comedians, two performers who would now be called drag queens, and a pianist, Wallingford Tate, a man who would soon become Florence's best friend. On December 4, 1922, Florence and her fellow Globetrotters left Brisbane and set sail for Singapore. You sure you have everything you need? Yes, Mother. I'm all set. You're so lucky you get to travel. I wish I could see the world. Now, Scylla, just be happy for your older sister. I am happy for her. Come on, Bobby! We have to go! Coming, Wally! All right, I promise to write. I'll be safe, etc. I love you! I love you! I love you! Did that man just call her Bobby? He did. I wonder why. Miss Bobby Broadhurst was Florence's new stage name. As Bobby, she shed the appearance of a proper Victorian young girl... She became a true woman of the 20s, complete with a stylish bob, lots of makeup, and revealing costumes. With the Globetrotters, Florence sang and danced from Singapore to Manchuria over a 15-month period. During the tour, Florence was often singled out in reviews for her charm and her talent. She lived the high life on the road with the Globetrotters, but when it all came to a close, the future of the group seemed uncertain. The owners of the troupe decided not to produce a second tour, and so in March of 1924, the Globetrotters went their separate ways. Florence and a few of her fellow performers decided to try their luck where the real money could be found, Shanghai. Florence was able to secure a new position as part of the in-house entertainment at a Shanghai venue called the Carlton. However, her friend found an opportunity with a different traveling troupe that would take him out of Shanghai. On December 15, 1925, Wallingford Tate tried to convince Florence to join him. I believe congratulations are in order. Cheers to you, Wally. Yes, it's all fine and good. But are you sure you're happy here? It's wonderful. I'm quite happy. Dearest... Don't call me dearest, you old cad. You want something. What is it? Bobby, come with me. We could use a pretty young thing like you. The audiences will go absolutely wild. Wally. It would be a dream. I'm sure it would, but no. I need to see what there is for me here. And so, Wallingford shipped off with his new troop, leaving Florence alone in Shanghai. She went back to the Carlton, putting on her brightest smile, but inside she was less certain. After a few weeks at the Carlton, she grew tired of being bossed around, so in February of 1926, she went into business for herself. Florence opened the Broadhurst Academy Incorporated School of the Arts, a finishing school for the daughters of British and American expatriates in Shanghai, to learn everything from beauty tips to singing to dancing. It was in this period that Florence developed yet another skill set that would help her succeed in many of her endeavors, 
advertising. Florence took out ads in newspapers, appeared in radio spots, and rubbed elbows with social columnists to help spread word of her school. Her school seemed on track to just keep growing. But violence soon threw her entire plan off balance. On April 12, 1927, the president of the Chinese Republic sent the Kuomintang army and triad gangsters into Shanghai. They reached into people's homes to purge any suspected or confirmed communists. Blood ran through the streets as people were assaulted and murdered. As they marched through the city, another message rang loud and clear. Foreigners are not welcome. Florence knew that it was time for her to make an exit. Before she left Shanghai, however, she had one more performance. On May 25, 1927, as the Chinese sped towards revolutionary change, she made a special appearance at the Lyceum Theater in honor of Empire Day. There, in front of a crowd of mostly English and American expatriates, she stood tall and proud and unafraid of the danger for foreigners. So, with a twinkle in her eye, she bellowed a defiant rendition of God Save the King. With that, she made her escape back to her homeland of Australia, safely back in Queensland by July 1927. Florence walked into her family's house completely self-satisfied. Her father, Bill, convinced her to give a performance at a hotel that he owned. She was received by her neighbors as a hometown hero, but she had grown accustomed to larger crowds and grander stages. Having gone from a life full of travel and excitement to the monotony of small-town life, Florence began to get restless. A few days after the performance, she spent a night out with some friends. She drank more and drove faster than she probably should have, and on her way home, she rolled her father's car. Metal crunched and closed around her, her body shaking helplessly. When the car came to a stop, Florence realized that she was lucky to be alive. Medics arrived on the scene and brought Florence to the hospital. The doctors had to shave parts of her head in order to dress the wounds. Weeks went by. Florence Broadhurst, once a sultry icon of the stage, was battered, frail, and covered in bandages. While stewing in the hospital, she kept turning over the same thought in her head. Not here. I will not die in this nothing of a town. And so, as soon as she got out of the hospital, she set off again. On Wednesday, October 19, 1927, Florence stepped aboard a boat that took her to London, where she wouldn't only find a new adventure... There, she would become an entirely new person. Coming up, we'll cover how Florence conned her way to success and wealth in England. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this fantastic series from Parcast. It's already one of my new favorites. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why should you hold your breath when passing a cemetery? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed? 
and others don't. Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical, or illogical, or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On October 19, 1927, after a gruesome car accident that nearly cost her her life, 28-year-old Florence Broadhurst left Australia to reinvent herself in London. Over the next several months, Florence put the dressmaking skills she learned in her younger years to work at several fashion houses, including the higher-end Madame Corot Limited. This career proved lucrative, and she began climbing the social ladder. By August of 1928, she decided to take herself on a summer holiday to Paris. Florence had her sights set on more than just the views of the city. Floating in the circles of the well-to-do and well-connected, Florence met Percy Can, a stockbroker working for his father's successful firm. Florence was all charm, and soon after meeting, the two became engaged. Of course, this rapid engagement came as a huge shock to her family in Australia. What? What are you reading, Father? A letter from some man named John Can. Apparently, his son is marrying your sister. What's more, he's asking for 2,000 pounds to help pay for the wedding. 2,000? You aren't going to send it, are you? Well... You can't be serious! Scylla, it's for your sister. Be happy for your sister. On Friday, June 7th, 1929... The Times announced the upcoming nuptials of the young couple. Only two weeks later, Florence and Percy were married. Unfortunately for Percy and Florence, their newlywed bliss was short-lived. Just a few months after their wedding, the stock market crashed. Percy was one of many around the world who struggled to stay afloat in the aftermath. Percy's father's stock brokerage disappeared from the records entirely by 1931. Two years later, Percy's own business had dissolved, but Florence was not about to let her husband's catastrophe bring them to ruin. She immediately went back to work for Madame Corot making dresses. Florence watched the way Madame Corot interacted with her clientele very carefully. She took notes of who came into the storefront. Slowly, she began to put together a scheme. One day, Madame Corot received notice that Florence would be quitting. Corot found it strange for a person to leave their job in the midst of a depression, but Corot wished her well. Then in 1933, a brand new rival appeared on the scene, a designer that no one had ever heard of before, Madame Pellier, French couturier and mistress supreme. 
local newspapers and magazines burst with advertisements for Madame Pellier's fashion house. Social columnists gushed about this new chic mistress, and the well-to-do became curious. Madame Pellier was, of course, Florence Broadhurst herself. Florence and her husband were able to secure a chic studio on a quiet corner in the center of London. There, Florence entertained and accommodated her clientele, many of whom had previously been customers of Madame Corot. Swanky socialites, renowned artists, and wealthy debutantes flocked into Florence's studio. They were impressed with her designs and even more delighted by Florence herself. Just as when she was on stage, Florence was charming, commanding, and electric. Success came swiftly. By November 7, 1935, a Madame Pellier design was featured in Vogue, and the company boasted themselves as dressmakers for court. It seemed the fashion house would finally be Florence's ticket to fame and fortune. Unfortunately, her well of resources began to dry up. While she was able to bring in many clients, very few became returning customers. With the economic depression affecting all tiers of society, it became difficult to justify buying more expensive clothing than one needed. Florence doubled down her efforts. She blasted out another ad campaign, but the clothes stayed on their racks. People were conserving their money, and Florence felt the haunting voice of failure creeping in. She was desperately in need of validation, and she found it in the admiring eyes of Leonard Lloyd Lewis, a 23-year-old fruit merchant. Leonard had come to Florence's storefront one day and started dropping in regularly. He was completely taken with Florence, who at this time was 36. Her business may have been failing, her marriage may have been growing stale, but at least Leonard thought she was amazing. By the end of February 1936, Florence gave in to her passions and left Percy Can. Leonard, in a rush of romance, very quickly moved in to fill his spot. From that moment on, Florence, in both public and private, would refer to Leonard as her husband and take on the name Mrs. Lewis. However, the two were never legally married, perhaps because of divorce laws at the time. Still, they lived happily together, and on May 3, 1938, 39-year-old Florence went into labor with her only child, whom we will call William for the sake of his privacy. Leonard raced to the hospital to be by her side. However, a fog had set in over London, and Leonard crashed his car, tearing his pancreas. Ultimately, Leonard recovered well enough, and according to a biography of Florence's life by Helen O'Neill, the new family would joke that William's birth put both of his parents in the hospital. Florence, who had taken so quickly to most anything she tried her hand at, likely found motherhood to be a challenge. Raising William required a good deal of her attention, and her own mother had recently passed away. On top of that, at some point during these years, Madame Corot filed a lawsuit against Florence, likely alleging that she had stolen trade information and clients. While we don't know the details of this case, we do know that between the demands of her newborn and increasing financial pressure, Florence felt ready to burst. Florence Broadhurst, however, was not a woman to let anyone call her shots for her. Realizing she was reaching the end of her rope, she decided to fold the fashion house herself, rather than be put out of business by a rival. 
So by the end of the 1930s, Madame Pellier, head held high, closed her doors for good. The timing ended up working in Florence's favor because soon after she closed her fashion house, Europe became embroiled in World War II. All hands were on deck in England. Leonard, who was unable to serve because of his pancreas injury, ran a factory which manufactured bomb sites for British airplanes. Florence made and sold cartons and offered hospitality to soldiers through the Australian Women's Voluntary Services. Florence believed firmly in the might of the English Empire. However, near-constant sirens and bomb threats gave her severe anxiety, and glamour was a small distraction. She grew out her hair and dyed it blonde to fit the Hollywood fashion of the time. But perhaps she also believed, should England lose the war, her fair hair, skin, and eyes might grant her enough leniency with the Germans to escape conflict. More than a patriot, she was a survivor. Her husband's job meant that he was often away on business, and so Florence kept William close by her side. Every day, it seemed, there were more dangers to protect him from. Florence fought for years to keep her chin up and her child alive, sending the boy to boarding school towards the end of the war. Finally, relief came in May 1945, when the war ended in England. No more hiding in basements, no more sirens. Life could be normal again. But life was far from normal. Florence discovered that Leonard had met someone new. After all she had done to protect their family, to plan for any outcome, Leonard had betrayed her. But she was not about to allow her life to be taken out of her control. Florence put her foot down. I don't know what you want me to say, Florence. I love her. Lower your voice. You're going to wake William. I'm sorry. I love her, Flo. No, you don't. You're infatuated by some silly young thing. You'll get over it. That's not what this is. I Let me make one thing very clear to you, Leonard. You are my husband. That is that. You will not see this girl ever again. Here, I've already booked your passage. You leave next week, and William and I will meet you there later. You are my husband, and we are moving to Australia. Have I made myself clear? Yes, dear. Wonderful. Why don't you go for a walk and clear your head? I'll go make sure that you haven't woken our son with your outburst. Yes, dear. And with that... Leonard went on ahead to Florence's home country. Florence would soon join him. In 1949, Florence and her son said their final goodbyes to England and journeyed to Sydney. She had nothing to show for her time in England besides a failed business and an unfaithful husband. She needed to find something new, something that could be her legacy. When Florence and William landed in Queensland, she began taking excursions with her family into the wilderness. They traveled all over Australia, and Florence trained in a new art, painting. Just as with sewing and singing, Florence picked up the skill rather quickly. Over the next several years, Florence painted over 100 landscapes of her homeland. By April 1st, 1954, April Fool's Day, Florence had moved to Sydney and was ready to reveal herself once more. She gave interviews in two major newspapers promoting an upcoming show of her work at a gallery. She took the opportunity to craft a new and completely false history for herself. I can't believe this! Did you see the Daily Telegraph? 
No, I read it in the Herald. Apparently, our Florence is not, in fact, from Australia. She's an English aristocrat. I guess it must have been some other Florence Broadhurst I raised. And her husband is apparently a business tycoon? I swear, I thought I'd seen it all with my sister, and then she pulls something like this. Scylla, if your mother were alive to see this, is she ashamed of us? No, father, she's just full of it. Florence was perfectly fine distancing herself from her family if it gave her a better chance at fame. Despite a series of solo and group shows of her paintings in different cities, ultimately, Florence found only mild success with her landscapes. Some critics, it seemed, were able to see through her ruse. In her work, they noted decent technical skill, but they saw no deeper feeling, no real love for the country she was trying to capture. Moving through galleries did allow Florence access to a certain echelon of society, and there she found a firmer grasp. Florence was soon a member of several clubs and organizations, taking part in fundraising and giving speeches, and in a July 10, 1958 newspaper interview, she made the announcement that she would be focusing on philanthropy full-time. Meanwhile, her husband Leonard who by this point was sometimes publicly called Mr. Broadhurst, had purchased a truck yard. Around the time William finished secondary school and was embarking on adulthood, Leonard, trying to fill a void in his life, began to develop a gambling habit. He lost more than he won, and it put a huge amount of financial stress on the family. To make matters worse, Leonard once again became involved with another woman— who was only a few years older than his son. This time, he would not allow himself to be controlled. In the early 1960s, he abandoned Florence and left her to manage all of the business affairs herself. Florence, who had weathered so many setbacks, finally began to crumble under the pressure. She tried to make up for the lost income by renting a shed in the truck yard to a young artist who will call James for the sake of his privacy. Unfortunately, James never made enough money to actually pay rent. Florence was getting desperate. She ran her hands through her hair, which was now dyed a flaming red, and nearly tore it all out. She could have screamed, but it would have been drowned out by the head-pounding noise of the trucks outside her office. Florence realized, perhaps for the first time, that she could not do this on her own. So she called up her artist friend, Phyllis Shillito, and asked her to come down to the office right away. I just don't know what I'm going to do, Phyllis. Leonard is gone. William is married with a family now. It's all on me. The trucks aren't bringing in enough money, and that boy out in the shed never pays his rent. What is he doing out there? Oh, I don't know. Screen printing or something. He's got these big wooden frames, but he can't work. What do you mean he can't work? He never sells anything. He doesn't make any money, so he can't pay me. Trust me, Florence. Any artist can work if given the right opportunity. Maybe he just needs a bit of business guidance. What are you saying? I'm saying he has the tools for making wallpaper, and you know how to sell things. Maybe you should invest in him and see if there's a way for you both to make some more money. Florence followed Phyllis's advice. Little did Florence know, she was about to discover the path that would lead her to fame and to a violent end.
Coming up, we'll cover Florence's last great success before her tragic murder. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And now, back to our story. In 1961, 62-year-old Florence Broadhurst was on the brink of financial ruin. She managed a truck yard, but the work was too much for one person, and Florence felt like she was losing control. So she took her friend Phyllis's advice and went to confront the man renting out her shed. Oh, Mrs. Broadhurst, what are you... No, James, I think it is I who should be asking what you are doing back here. Well, I'm trying to... Uh, trying doesn't pay the rent, James. Look, I'm sorry, I just... I haven't been able to sell any of my designs. Turn on that light, let me see them. <laughs> no wonder you can't sell anything. You want people to see your designs, James. You want them to pop out. And this color, so drab. Make it bright. Boldness sells. Like this? Well, yes, yes! Oh, James, this I can work with. Together, Florence and James started what would eventually be called Florence Broadhurst Wallpapers. Florence put her name on the company and directed the designs to suit her vision, but James was the one doing most of the drawing, painting, and color mixing. Of course, Florence was always there to give him the same notes. Bolder, James! Brighter! But James and Florence couldn't handle a whole company alone. They needed other artists on the team and someone to actually print their designs. They found the perfect partner in David Bond, a young man with a difficult past and a tireless desire to work. David was instantly drawn to Florence. She was the strong maternal figure he desperately needed. Next came a bevy of other folks who worked as printers, illustrators, and assistants. Most of the laborers were young women for whom this was their first job. Florence preferred it that way. She enjoyed their energy, and she could shape them to work exactly the way she wanted. Whatever her methods were, they worked. Florence found huge success with her wallpaper designs. The flashy colors and bold prints hid in exactly the right spot for the Australian market. It wasn't long before the brand went global. After achieving such success, it was time for an upgrade. So on November 22, 1969, Florence left the truckyard shed and opened up a brand new studio in the chic Paddington suburb of Sydney. There was a party to celebrate filled with the who's who of Sydney at the time. As excited as they were to see the space, Florence herself was the main attraction. With her bright red hair, long fake lashes, and eccentric wardrobe, Florence was something to behold. She was charismatic, kooky, and told amazing stories, most of which were not true. It was very important to Florence to keep up certain public perceptions. For example... Florence's sight was beginning to fail her, and while she never really did most of the designs that she was given credit for, 
it was more important than ever that she appear to be the powerhouse of the company. All right, ladies, Channel 9 is on their way here right now. You know the drill. Narissa, step aside. This is my light box now. What is it that you're working on? I can't see it. Oh, well, just hand me the pencil and put my hand where the line should be. Susie, stop drawing and get coffee or something. You're an assistant, remember? Leone, how's my makeup? Is it all right? No time. They're here. Everyone move. Oh, hello. You're with Channel 9. Uh, yes, hello. I'm sorry. You've just caught me in the middle of a burst of creativity. Oh, that's actually perfect. Uh, would you mind staying like that just for a moment? It's a wonderful shot of the artist in action. I'm sure I look like a mess, but if you think it's a great shot... Eccentricities aside, most of Florence's employees loved her. Many, like David Bond, stayed loyal to her to the very end. But not everyone shared such warm feelings about Florence. One young man, who we'll call Todd for the sake of privacy, had reportedly started working for Florence after being recommended by a friend. Todd, however, struggled with heroin addiction and as such was an erratic employee. He was ultimately let go, but in January 1974, his outrage at his boss turned into violence. It was well known by those closest to Florence that she carried a good deal of money around at all times. She often had $1,000 in her handbag alone. Todd, disguising himself with a stocking over his head, confronted Florence in her office on January 5th, demanding her handbag. When she refused to turn it over, things got ugly. Todd, let go of my bag! Mrs. Broadhurst, I was... I just want to borrow some money. Yeah, you're sweating like a pig. I need it. Uh, you broke my finger! I'm sorry. I'm sorry! Don't you ever come back here! You hear me? Todd was taken into police custody and charges were filed against him the following month. But apparently, the run-in didn't inspire Florence to change her habits at all. She continued to carry large amounts of cash around wherever she went, and she behaved fearlessly with anyone who entered her design studio. William, Florence's son, became worried for his mother. He tried to convince her that she should be more careful, that she should not carry around so much money with her, but Florence wouldn't have it. Florence resented her son telling her what to do, as if she were incapable of taking care of herself. On Friday, October 14, 1977, the tension came to a head. You're making yourself a target! Nonsense! You're so stubborn! I don't know what else to say to you! If you don't know what to say, then maybe you should leave. I don't particularly enjoy being chastised by my own son. You're unbelievable! Yes, fine. I'll see you and your family tomorrow for dinner, right? No, Mother. Not this time. When you're ready to listen to reason, then you can see me and my family again. The decision to storm out of his mother's office that day would haunt William for years to come. The next day, on October 15, 1977, Florence Broadhurst came into her studio bright and early like she always did. At nine in the morning, a few of her employees showed up. By three, the employees had finished their work, taking their week's wages and heading home. Florence drew the blinds as she always did before closing. 
but she never made it home herself. The next morning, one of Florence's neighbors noticed the lights were still on in the studio and the front door was open. That seemed odd. Worried, they phoned the police. When officers arrived on the scene, nothing on the factory floor seemed out of the ordinary. They walked up to the second floor, towards Florence's office. The room was empty, but on the ground was a trail of bloody handprints, as if someone had been trying to crawl away. They followed the blood towards Florence's personal bathroom. Inside, the police officers discovered Florence's bloody and mangled body. She was bent over on her knees, with her head shoved in the toilet. Florence's fingers were broken and her rings removed. At a quick glance, it appeared to be a robbery gone wrong. But why target a wallpaper factory and an elderly woman? Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on Florence Broadhurst, where we'll explore the investigation into Florence's mysterious death, including a psychic who heard Florence speaking from beyond the grave. For more information on her murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Florence Broadhurst, Her Secret and Extraordinary Lives by Helen O'Neill, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Joseph Bricker, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Rebecca Thomas, and Laura Faye Smith. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Bad omens? Good fortune. Pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>